0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such A Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and once again, I'm delighted to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares.
1: And we are so excited to have you join us on our continuation of the Friday the 13th franchise for Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Rather, he gets to Manhattan eventually.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I kept waiting, right? I was like, when are we getting back to Manhattan? And so, and
1: this was your first time you had seen the film. This as well, is my right? first
0: time I had seen this one. I can't believe, first off, that we're already on film eight. That's that's so exciting. It's been a while, right? But like, it's so yeah. exciting to, to be there. But no, I'd never seen this film before. So going in, I had questions, right? I was like, how's he going to end up in Manhattan? That feels very random. Also, like what havoc is he gonna wreck in New York? Then as I was watching the film, my question became, are they actually gonna go to New York? Because
1: we're spending it takes a, a while. we are sure spending a lot of time on a boat.
0: <laughs> yeah, no joke. So that's a I think a perfect segue. Tony, would you be willing to give your spoiler-free plot synopses that you do?
1: Absolutely. So here we are. The year is 1989 and because the producers got to produce, we're obligated for a new installment in the Friday the 13th franchise. And this time we start uh, on a houseboat when with Jim telling his girlfriend Susie about the legend of Jason Voorhees before he kind of comes yes. out from, sneaks on board, kills Jim with a harpoon gun and impales Susie, and then... The boat sets sail to New York with Jason on board and Jason is slashing and dicing on board, this cr- on, on board this boat that takes, as we already teased, a very, very long time to get to New York, which is its final destination.
0: And then because one- he's not even on the same boat, right? So he's on that little he's on boat, that zip- he kills yeah. them, and then he gets onto the cruise ship, which feels an awful lot like a not a cruise ship. Yeah,
1: because it's mixing, yeah. like, it seems to be mixing, like, school trips with, like, yes. more people who are just, like, up chilling, relaxing, like a more, yes. like, White lotus situation. And then when we finally get to Times Square, and it really is, like, the last, like, 15, mm-hmm. 20 minutes of the movie, it is pretty fun, but then that's it. That's the movie. He's in there for, like, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the shenanigans that he gets up to in New York, but it's pretty brief. It's a pretty brief appearance.
0: It is, especially considering, you know, again, this sort of title of the film. I I thought it would, would go places more. I want to actually, I want to talk about my favorite moment in the film, which has nothing to do with Jason. And it's, it's a really goofy moment, but you know, the very, very beginning of the film starts with us in New York. Right. And it's good. and Right. And we're seeing the grossness that is New York City and pretty much the version of New York City that happens in all films in the late 80s and early 90s. Like, this is maybe not the reality of New York City in the 80s and 90s, but it's certainly the reality of Hollywood's version. Yeah, And we're seeing, you know, like, there is no moment where people have multiple needles in their arms, but that's the vibe, right? Where they're just shambling about and all that stuff. And then happens my most favorite moment, when that rat emerges out of that vat of toxic goo. And it was like, that, that right there in a nutshell, (laughs) sums up this film's feelings about New York City. It is a place where a rat could thrive in a toxic vat of goo.
1: Yeah, and I think that what's so frustrating is like, it's a good opening, like, little bit, but then we immediately cut away from it. And I just would have loved to really earnestly explore jason kind of thriving in this environment that is so dilapidated and yes just filled with filth
0: yes and it's also interesting so i watched um jason takes manhattan and then we're filming this in march 2023 i last week i know you're saw to scream <laughs> scream six right <laughs> yes. have you seen it yet
1: I have seen Scream 6, I was going to bring it up if you didn't bring it up. Yes, okay,
0: so at some point very, very soon, maybe in the next few episodes, we will definitely be doing an episode on, on Scream 6 to continue our discussion of that franchise. But when you compare the, the opening scene and and this and Jason Takes Manhattan's version of New York City with the like much cleaner, more like this is the city of, of magic and yes, it's filled with lots of people. But it's also beautiful, isn't it? That is the opening version in Scream 6 before Ghostface really arrives on the scene, you know, after, of course, the cold opening. But like, it is two very different versions of New York City. And I just, I find it interesting how this franchise is, is, both franchises are making the city have a very specific personality that is so different from each other.
1: That's a really interesting point. I think Scream 6 definitely has more of a feel of like there are pockets of this yes. madness, like the alleyway that we go down to. Are these like there are these like little pockets of mayhem running about, whereas Friday the 13th's initial approach to the city is like this is a city in shambles and in Yes, it's all it's garbage everywhere, Times Square. And I mean, I guess in fairness to it, that's not exactly a stereotype that is untrue. Because this was in the eighties, before the kind of forced cleanup of Times Square yeah. that yeah. kind of was systematically underwent underdone by the mayor of the, of New York during the eighties and nineties. So I, I guess it, it, it's not exactly a stereotype that I guess is factually or historically unfounded, <laughs> but they certainly are different.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But and now yeah, they are different. But Scream Six, and we'll talk about that more on our on that full episode but they do a much better job of using i think all of the many locations that new york and manhattan has to offer like here it really feels like we would get like that we're in times square really briefly for like a quick little second we like run through we like see some cabs and stuff we go to a diner real quick we're briefly in the sewers and then we die and like that's and then the subway
0: we have the subway
1: oh you're, I guess we're briefly in the subway, too, like so in Scream 6. <laughs> right.
0: Which is a whole, like, interesting thing unto itself. And I, I I was thinking about it as I was watching that scene in both films, right, on the subway. And I can't figure out if certainly there's something sort of inherently frightening about about the idea of being trapped, you know, on a moving vessel. But, but I can't figure out if, if our fascination with subway stations stems from the fact that in America we just have so few of them. Because I, I don't feel like European films do nearly as much stuff on on subways or even on trains, except for and this isn't of course European, it's but Train to Busan, right? Which definitely mm. is doing that. But like, I just think it's interesting that it's the subway is such an exotic locale that it becomes this like feature in almost every film, certainly from the '80s and '90s that goes to New York, but also a lot of these horror films.
1: Public transportation is a horror. Uh, For capitalists.
0: Uh, Well, (laughs) that's certainly true.
1: It is a a literal source of horror for them.
0: Yes, yes. (laughs) They're like, but how will we make all the money we want if we make transportation available to everyone? How do we keep people (laughs) out of our special places? Uh, Yeah, no, that's that's, that's hysterical. Okay, so not a surprise, maybe, but not a lot of scholarship on (laughs) on Jason Takes Manhattan. And- (sighs) That doesn't mean that there doesn't exist any. It does mean that in my search, I didn't come up with anything that really caught my attention as as being particularly relevant. But that's okay, because Tony has promised me that there is enough stuff that is going on behind the scenes of this film to carry us forward. So what is one of the things that you discovered that you want to, like, immediately share with me? So, I mean... Right, hot
1: or hot off of a disappointing box office from the last one, producers are are scrambling. Director John Carl Buckley, he's like he's trying to develop a follow up, kind of around Tina to face off against Jason after she escapes from like insane asylum. Meanwhile, like several other screenwriters are pitching their versions of it because there is just no agreement in the Friday the Thirteenth camp on um, the direction for this for the next part of the franchise so there are just all of these different pitches going around and ultimately Paramore, paramount not Paramount, <laughs> wrong group <laughs> wrong group paramount uh, opted to give the project to rob Hedman, who this is his feature debut he was just a former employee of universal studios And he had his his whole pitch that he did was he was like, okay, Jason, right? We've got Jason. We've got Camp Crystal Lake. What if we cut Camp Crystal Lake and we take Jason to a new location? Uh, Direct quote. The biggest thing we could do with Jason is to get him out of that stupid lake where he's been hanging out. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So one of his original ideas was he wanted to kind of set the set it aboard solely a cruise ship and he was like it'll be mm. like das boot with aliens on the sea uh and then his next he buddy and then he had a totally separate pitch where he was like okay we're gonna it's gonna be new york baby everything about new york is gonna be exploited and milked uh, this is direct quote gonna be a tremendous scene on the brooklyn bridge a boxing match in madison square garden Jason would go through department stores, he'd go through Times Square, he'd go into a Broadway play, he'd even crawl onto the top of the Statue of Liberty and dive off. And he received approval for both concepts. And rather than making them into two separate films, he got the big brain at genius idea. He was like, what if I just combine these two things and together, totally seamless, right? And he was a, his original pitch, when he was like going to the studio, he was like, okay, so first act, which the first half is cruise ship, second half is on the streets of Manhattan. And then Paramount said, yes. And then, once they were, after the script had been developed, they said, actually, due to budgetary restrictions, yeah. and you've already spent so much money, no, we are cutting that. And it just kept getting hacked away until it is the kind of end result where it is, subtitled Jason takes Manhattan and yet he doesn't really seem to take Manhattan until the last like 15
0: minutes. And that's interesting.
1: It's yeah. So it was kind of this like compromise in and of itself between competing visions for it. And they offered all of these different people, the, the roles, uh, I mean, Jenison Daggett was ultimately cast. She beat out Elizabeth Berkeley and Pamela Anderson for the wow uh and uh, interesting lisa wilcock who played alice over in the nightmare franchise yes the film producers offered her a role but she turned it down she didn't want to hop onto this uh, onto this franchise and uh so this film it comes out it is the most expensive of the franchise to date and it is uh, with a budget of over five million dollars which Mm. A lot of other, That's still very low. Like, that's still low. Right. For like big money speaking, big project wise. But it is also for spending the most money. It was also at the time, the biggest disappointment at the box office earning only 14 million dollars. So you'll notice it still earned more than it cost to make, but it was not nearly as successful as the previous entries in the franchise. So they had to do more soul searching after this and for their crimes, they go to hell. Yeah.
0: So good, 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 good. Where eventually they will meet Jason because we're going to go there yes. too. So <laughs> here's my thing. I know why because I know it's a financial reason that that for many people, right? Not for everyone involved, but I know that there's a financial component of you know. Do you want to know that you have a built-in audience? They may not be thrilled by it, but you still have a built-in audience, and if you do, then will stay in there and but you can kind of do whatever you want and you and i were just talking before we started recording about how even theater does this right like they will they will find great casts great direction but they'll throw it into a well-known script because they know that that will draw people in and and so i know that's a good chunk of the reason why for many people i also know that there are some people that are just like i would love to make a friday the 13th film but like at what point does it stop being a friday the 13th film right because after film one, it's no longer with Pamela Voorhees. So it's no longer with the person who just the franchise to begin with. And I was, okay, fine. But then it's like, okay, but not every film's even going to have Jason. Not every film's going to even have Crystal Lake. And I just, like, at what point, at what point is it just no longer really a Friday the 13th film, even if it looks like it on the surface? And maybe there isn't a good answer because maybe the franchise is, by definition always okay with being different from what it was but i don't i don't know it i don't think it's ever to its success not really i i just i've never it's so shocking to me i've never it's this is such a franchise
1: that has such an intense identity crisis all the time yes and perpetually
0: seems to hate itself like it but yet fans define themselves more rigorously almost by this franchise than i think they do by others which is, I think that's
1: I it's a it's an interesting tension that emerges where yes. the create on the creative side it seems to be like they're like this is all we can't we have to keep reinventing this is never it's not actually any good we got to get to the next genius big brain idea but the yes. fans are just like no you guys have it we love this this is perfect don't mess with the formula whatever yes. that formula is don't mess with it <laughs> yes yes
0: and it's so odd because the result is this like weird. Thing that certainly in this case happened in part because they merged together two films, but like it doesn't make sense. And I I know that a (laughs) lot of things don't have to make sense, but like it doesn't make sense to degrees that just feel unnecessary. So I'm actually okay. In fact, I appreciate that they just decided, I think in the last film, but certainly by this film, to just lean into the fact that Jason is no longer even remotely normal, right? He's, if not supernatural, then paranormal, but he's like. You can stab him in the eye and he won't die because he's no longer living. Like that is actually, I think, one of the strongest moves that the franchise has made. Reason.
1: absolutely, turning Jason into a zombie canonically. And what was that, yes. five or six? Uh, God, with, when he they got hit beginning. by the lightning and the graveyard. Yes, 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 yes. He, he's some. Uh, they canonically turn him into a zombie or zombie-esque figure at some yes. point. If you don't like the term zombie, we don't have to use right. it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because that's a whole separate creature, right? If we Yeah, it I know I know that
1: some some creators lately, some Last of Us creators, yes. have been getting really, they're offended by the word zombie, so I will, we should yes. be respectful.
0: That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the the film starts out on this sort of, like, pleasure boat of, of yeah. the couple that die at the beginning. Somehow and, Jason makes it onto that boat.
1: Okay, and I actually I'm willing to take of, that. I kind
0: of like that sequence. You know, it was very well
1: done. Violence and at that point when I was watching it, I thought maybe we would only be on the boats for a little second. And so <laughs> yes. I was willing to go with it. And the first sequence with the harpoon gun is,
0: it's yeah. very well done. It was also a, a well-written sequence. Um, you know, I thought the characters were kind of interesting. I was actually excited to see them a little bit more. And then, of course, they, they died. And they were probably, yeah. interestingly enough, two of the most developed characters.
1: Throughout the whole movie, mean? Throughout the
0: whole movie, yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, which was a shame they were the only ones whose names I remembered during my plot summary without having to look at it. And they're in it at the very beginning. That's fun. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't remember any of the other characters' names. I I remember Rinny's name
0: because... the main female character, because I like that name because it's unusual. But, like, I don't remember any of the others. Okay. So, somehow we suspend our disbelief that Jason, who, by the way, clearly has a fear of water because, you know, he drowned, somehow gets himself from pleasure ship, pleasure boat, (laughs) to the cruise ship, Right. Which is the weirdest cruise ship I've ever seen because, first off, what high sc- school class is able to afford a cruise ship? But it's also, like, there's no crew. There's the captain, his first mate, and then the guy who's the, the harbinger, right? The guy who's, like, be warned. But, like, yes. where is everyone else on the cruise ship? Well, it's right? his—the
1: the captain brought his son, so you—he yeah. don't need to worry about it. He's got his son, and yeah. don't you remember yeah. your— Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jobs are passed down genetically. Yes, And yes. so he's that fine. Scene, That's fine.
0: That scene where he's like, son, it's your turn to take the ship. And I was like, what is happening here? That was
1: really funny, I see. It, I was,
0: it was hysterical, but like, I couldn't figure out if they intended it to be funny or if they were just setting up foreshadowing for how you know, he was going to be able to navigate the boat later. But yeah. like that first mate was just like, yep, this is how it works. Like, it just, I had so many questions. Okay. It also looked like a freight ship. It does not look like a cruise ship. So I have many questions. Okay. But we move into the, to the cruise ship where I actually was happy. I thought there were some interesting deaths, you know, and there were some interesting things, you know, talk about a great way to kill a lot of people in a really small period of time. And I do think the one, the one thing
1: that the writer director uh, was able to achieve from his original pitch and vision was he did get the claustrophobic feel on the boat. Yes. Right. And I, I think that, that you definitely don't know. It's fun not knowing mm-hmm. where Jason is going to pop up out of. And they use the setting of the boat well. It almost makes you wish they had just maybe made... Like, I wish they had. Made just Jason goes, Jason goes on a cruise or something. Like, Jason takes a cruise. Uh... Yes, I, I would
0: have... <laughs> it's not as clever, perhaps, of a title. But I think it would have been a much better film. What about Jason takes a trip? It keeps some oh, alliteration. That's nice. That's nice. That's nice. I was trying to remember any of the cruise lines, like the real names and see if we could, you know, like, but I don't, I don't know enough about cruise ships. So. Jason
1: spirited away. Is there spirit? Yes, <laughs> there is now. That would be amazing.
0: But like we have, um, I think you're right that the, that that is perhaps where this film really shines is in, in having this location because in the forests of Camp Crystal Lake, the fear is, is that he could be anywhere because the forest is so big, right? And there's a sense that you don't know where you are in the forest, but it feels big, right? That's, that's what's scary about it. Whereas I think you're right that the cruise ship feels claustrophobic. And I'm not going to say that it's as good at doing this as the film Alien is, because certainly I think Alien's the best film at showing what how claustrophobic things can feel. But that the scenes in the boiler room, especially when the girl is playing the guitar, it feels, it has a sort of reminiscent fear that feel that you're like, I don't know where I am in the ship. And and that's kind of scary because everything feels tight.
1: Do the boiler room scenes to you also feel very nightmare on Elm Streety?
0: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't tell if it was like a nod or if it was a just or if like, they're just
1: ripping it off.
0: I couldn't yeah, tell either. Or if it was a koinky dink, which would seem strange to me, but but yes, there were some images that very much reminded me of, you know, we have our catabasis, we have our descent into hell, and and it was very reminiscent of it. But it also added, it was still managed to be a little bit different because, you know, we have this rocker chick, then we have the, like, guy who was doing the, the camera work. And and I think I would have been interested in seeing some of these characters developed out a little bit more because they were kind of interesting. But all the yeah. interesting people died immediately. Were the cannon fodder. Yes, yeah. yes. I agreed with that same thing. Because I, I also, I was ready to
1: come in this time and be like, you know, one of our big criticisms of the whole, of the franchise for the past three films has been that they have stopped presenting characters as human beings. Yes. And they are legitimately just, they are just flimsy excuses to be murdered and hacked to bits. And I was ready to come into this one about like halfway through being like, okay, I think the film took some notes. They like, yes, they act like they're still doing lots of stereotypes, but They're doing a lot more, there's a little bit more depth to them. But then they killed all the people that I liked halfway through. And then we were left with like the most boring, like the teacher and the captain's son. And these just like nothing-y characters. And I feel like the dialogue got a lot worse. And maybe it's just because they had to do massive rewrites because it wasn't supposed to be on a boat for that long. Yeah, no joke. But about halfway through, I kind of was, I'm unable to make that claim as confidently.
0: Correct. Correct. And we also have to talk about Rinnie's character. So first off, I, I, I don't think you should get on a boat if you don't know how to swim. Hot take. But like, I think you should <laughs> probably know how to swim if you're going to get on a boat. But you know, we have this weird setup of, of you know, her her uncle being just yet another example. We've had several of these in this franchise and a nightmare, right? Where you're like, you're a creepy patriarchal figure. And I can't yes. tell if you're supposed to be creepy, or if this is like, just understood that this is what it's like to have, you know, some father figure in your life. But we have this creepy uncle who's like, I don't want you on the ship. She gets on anyway. And then we start seeing that she's, she's having these, we don't know if they're visions or if they're flashbacks, but I think it's interesting that this is sort of the second film that now that has introduced this idea that there's something about our, our final girl that is, if not as, as supernatural as, as in the last episode or the last film. Is certainly still different, right? Like, I think it's interesting that it, our final girl is no longer enough to just be just a person, right? She has to have some like thing that makes her special.
1: Yeah, it's kind of we're entering the chosen one era of Final Girls now, yes. Which is diff, like we're we're not quite in like once we'll get to the early two thousands, we'll enter Final Girl as trauma, uh, like explicitly, yes, and. I think in the 80s, 70s, 80s, we were kind of in Final Girl as like just the norm, like most abnormal epitome of, or, and then it's kind of being developed here and to kind of like you have like a chosen one kind yes. of like there are pe- certain people who are just better, like, and they have powers and they are, they have that into that intuition, that special something that allows
0: them to survive. And, they are beginning to be final girls that as you said are born in trauma right so if we go back yes, to lori strode yes, yes. lori's just until they begin they eventually make this the canon right that it's like that michael myers is her brother and blah 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 and then of course they expane that but yeah you know in the very first film she's just an average girl who just happens to be caught in the sort of crosshairs of of michael myers in with Nancy, yeah, she has some quote trauma. Her parents have gotten a divorce. Her mom's definitely an alcoholic, but like, it's not exceptional trauma, right? It's like average, just things that happen. And same with our, our early girls in the Friday the 13th franchise. They're We don't even know enough about their background to, to start doing things. But by this film and, and the last film, and certainly if we want to count Tommy as a final girl in When He's a Grown Up, right? It's... They are who they are because they think that they killed their father on the pier. Both of their parents were killed in a car accident, and they have this huge, massive trauma with the drowning. You know, they became Jason Voorhees for a second, and now are <laughs> dealing with the repercussions of that. And I think you're right that we're going to see that sort of expand out. We're going to get things where where we have, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer that is a literal, every generation there's a chosen one. Yeah. and then And then we'll go into Scream where I think craven begins to say okay maybe it could just be an average person again you know um again some trauma though right because her mom has been brutally murdered yeah so i guess actually no we start to have the idea yeah never mind i take it back
1: it's like right at the end of the 90s into the 2000s we start to be like no no trauma it is not it's not a chosen it's not a specialness it's trauma." It's not a good thing to be a final girl. It's, it is, which I think is, I, it's funny that we've gotten to the point in a in fi- horror film where someone has to like Wes Craven has to come in and reset and be like, no, it's bad to be in a horror movie.
0: Yes. Yes. That
1: is essentially the thesis of scream because I think at a certain point, like you just get to these, like films like this contribute to this, just like mindless exploitation. And, like, oh, good, like, reduction of horror to this battle of more like fantasy, good versus evil, which is
0: not horror. Right, right. And we have a couple of films that I think have made an effort to to explore that idea. Like, I think of Jennifer's body, where the, at least throughout the film, Needy doesn't have the trauma yet. But the film ends with the idea that now that she's been born in trauma, she's interesting. Right, so like even yeah. even films that are trying to I think subvert the rules sometimes are just not able to do so, and so we don't know for sure what's going on with Rennie, but we know that she has to be the final girl, not because she's interesting, not because she's more talented, but simply because she has been born in trauma. okay, so we have all the things that happen on the cruise ship, so the pacing's wrong, and i and now I understand because it makes more sense based on what you said about that. The problems behind the scenes in terms of machine together yeah. two stories because like there's a ton of cannon fodder like right at the beginning and they go yeah. through the kills fast and then there's like this fifteen or twenty minute period where they're just literally running back and forth from different parts of the ship.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of talking about what they're yes. going to do, which is, I mean, probably what you would actually do
0: in yeah. a situation uh, yes. like that, but, but doesn't make sense in this film in this situation. It's not a gripping
1: narrative, no. No, and it really does feel like just padding the runtime until we can finally get off the boat. Yes.
0: Okay. So here is where I have one of my many questions that I know sh- it doesn't matter because you know it's like literally a fantasy film and, and almost every way possible. But okay, they are on the rowboat. They are rowing to New York City. That's right. They, they get onto the pier that is empty. Okay. And seconds later, Jason pulls himself up. So here is what could have happened. Option one, Jason has been swimming, like Olympian style swimming, despite the fact that very clearly he doesn't know how to swim because that's the part yeah. of the premise of this film. Or option two, he has been holding on to like a piece of rope underneath the rowboat And just let them drag him to the ship. And I like that one because it makes me giggle. But like, it just doesn't work, right? Like, I thought that at the very least, I'd be like, okay, so that the ship is how he gets to New York City. But it's not. So how does he get there? How does he get there, Tony? So I like the idea of him like holding on. And he's just like swimming underwater uh, and being dragged. And just like for what? Four days worth? I mean, it felt like forever, right? Yeah. So that's, that's my version of things. I like your, I like
1: this. I think we can just accept
0: it as canon. Or he could have done, like in Pirates of the Caribbean, where they can just like walk underwater. And so he's just been walking on the floor um, of the ocean, which I would also be okay with because that makes me laugh too.
1: I feel like that's probably, let's go with, let's go with that one. And then if yeah. people don't like that one, they can imagine him holding on to the plane I'm gonna, underwater.
0: I'm going to imagine there. him holding on because I like the idea of his little feet fluttering, but, um, but, <laughs> like, no matter what, it's it's a really weird move, right? It is. And then we get to New York for the last 15 or 20 minutes, where I think you can tell that it, it feels in many ways like a different film because suddenly we're being funny again, yeah. right? I mean, we also have, like, a near-rape scene, so there's some parts that are not funny, but, like, the scene with Julius, the boxing scene, where he's like, take your best shot. And then, you know, he knocks his head off. Um, the scene where he sees or a hockey mask on the billboard, because there's the hockey tournament. The scene where the thugs are like, you want to get in a fight? And he just lifts up his mask. Yeah. And then they're like, just kidding. Yes. Like,
1: yeah, go, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. No problem. Yes.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. those are all really funny beats. But it's a lot to pack into, again, this, like, last 15 or 20 minutes.
1: And- you really just wish they could use the use their set pieces more here but this is really the it was just so so it's so expensive to get permitting permitting in new york and to shut down the streets to film these things that just like even the little bits that they did end up filming there it, (laughs) it it just racked up their production costs so much and they were attracting a lot of attention because oh. right at this at this time, Friday the Thirteenth is a very uh, visible franchise yes. to the public, and very they're, they're very much aware of what it was. So they were getting a lot of street attention in New York. There's this really there's a funny story Kane Hodder tells where he's like, "Yep, I was just like walking around wearing the mask, and one time I I just like did like a thing at like a lady passing by, and she got so scared she fainted."
0: Oh my gosh, her, I love that. On the that.
1: streets of New York, because she just was yes. like, oh my god, it's Jason.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy.
1: And it's stuff like that where you're like,
0: oh, gosh,
1: guys, I do ultimately think for posterity it would have been better if you could have scraped together the money to, to shoot some more of this in New York. And I think maybe the other issue why they didn't shoot more of it in New York is New York wasn't super duper on board with them shooting it in New York. Oh, they interesting. They actually got into quite a few public disputes with the New York <laughs> Tourism Department. Um, interesting. Because they actually they filed a, a suit against Paramount. For, wow. Because Jason, they, in their marketing, they slashed through the I Love New York logo with a knife. <laughs> and... They did ultimately retract that uh, because of this dispute that was filed by the New York City Tourism Committee. Oh my
0: gosh, that's so funny. And I feel like now the opposite is true, where it feels like most cities are like, yeah, anything that you could film would be great because that's money. (laughs) That's interesting. Oh, yeah, that would have been such a good, there could have been so much, right? Like, there could have been so much fun stuff. I also would have really liked to have seen him, like, at the Broadway show. Yes. Or, or even funnier, I think like on an off-Broadway show where people think he's part of the show and he's like murdering people on the stage and they're just clapping because they're like, this is so, you know. Yeah, it's like an
1: it's, immersive, it's like yes. sleep no more, yes, very yes, avant-garde. Yes. And everybody's wearing the masks. They're, yes. They've all got masks on and they're cheering as he's murdering them. They're like, yes, yes we revel in this yes. depravity See? as See? they get murdered That would be too. so
0: funny. Like, there really could have been a lot of things that, again, wouldn't have required a lot of budget because you wouldn't have actually filmed it in New York. But but that's yeah. too bad. That's really too bad.
1: Yeah, I think that that's the other... Guys, why... Did you forget that you could build sets? Did you forget yeah. that, and, that art departments exist?
0: Yeah, I, I... other than the true, like, Times Square, nothing else really has to be in... And maybe uh, like this, maybe the subways, uh, like- But even as- so you- you, you'd need to film this going down in the subway, but you wouldn't have to actually be on subway cars. That's so true. You're right. I- you know what? Why don't they
1: just let us make movies? Every time I hear about the silly, silly mistakes that they make like this, I just wonder why they don't just let us who don't know anything about movies make movies. Yeah, (laughs) why
0: doesn't anyone trust us with millions of dollars when we don't have connections, we don't have the experience- Clearly, we're good on the idea. Well, this is only this is only five million dollars. Oh gosh! Yeah, (laughs) I love the fact that that they still made a a profit because we've talked about the fact that you know today films are just not making profits in the ways that they used to, and it's so amazing that not that long ago, being a box office failure still meant making a profit, just not as much of a profit. And now it's like, no, we we scratched even, or we went in the red. That's what we mean. It's a wild difference.
1: Yeah, it's really crazy how much the the elimination of like DVD markets and like so much of streaming has really yes kind of limited the amount of runtime that you can have yes. in a movie theater to yes. make income in, from that traditional market and then slowly do yes. a long rollout to make more money. You have to do, a, it's a lot more just like
0: shot in the dark. Yeah, because, you know, the only way to see Jason Takes Manhattan until, you know, eventually would maybe come out on VHS was to go see it in theater and... You know, are you maybe going to be disappointed when you realize it's not actually about New York? Probably, Probably. but by then, yeah. you know, it's it's too late. And also, there's not you know an internet site yet that's been devoted to talking and dissecting the film, so you know, you have to find out for yourself that it's not really in New York City. So we eventually, you know, we have all these ways that, that we see Jason being killed or not killed, right? Like third rail, all that stuff. And there is that weird moment where, of course, we we discover that Rennie the flash, flash forwards, flashbacks, I'm not sure, that she's been seeing have been Jason, right? So she's got this weird bond for him, which leads me to my favorite scene in the film that isn't the rat emerging from the toxic vat. And that is the scene where the uncle in the flashback says that he was just trying to teach her to swim by just pushing her in the water. And he's like, just swim. That's all you have to do. And um, I don't know, like, again, it's a hysterical scene because that's not how you learn to swim. But it's shot so straight you know they're they're not shooting it as this funny bit they're shooting it as like a, a her source of trauma uh which was yeah. a which was weird i just wish they would lean in a little bit more to the the comedy that is so inherent in the situations they're giving us but yeah you know <laughs> that and, uh, the best. i do think that and i think that's like just like they i that is a
1: problem in the script like whether or whether or not that comes from like the ma- the mishmashing of tone, like the mishmashing of tone or dropping up ideas, they could have at least punched up the humor. Yes. Like that's a- at this point, that's what we're here for. Like yeah, the, last, humor, the, last good kills. Ha- the last couple have just descended into like campiness and good kills. And so it was really kind of a little bit frustrating to see it take a step back in terms of kind of like the humor department, because even when we have been, absolutely roasting these films for not having any characters or any clear sense of source of horror anymore, they were at least still, like, they had zingers and it was, like, absurd. This one feels, for a premise that is, is absurd and is crazy, it feels surprisingly subdued.
0: Through the magic that is the editing, you have not been privy to this really long conversation that Tony and I just had to have about what our next film is, because there are too many films that are about cabins that are located in some woodsy areas, including, of course, all the Friday the 13th films. But now that that Tony and I know what film we're actually doing, because we each prepped a different film, Tony, what is our next episode going to be on? So our next episode
1: is going to be on 2023's Knock at the Cabin, it's available on Peacock and it is also available for rent now as well. So if you haven't seen it in theaters, go ahead and check it out. I'd also recommend uh, maybe going back and giving a listen to our episode where in which we discussed Paul Tremblay's book, Cabin at the End of the World." It's a fantastic book. If you haven't checked it out, I would also recommend reading it at some point. And this is M Night Shyamalan's crack at adapting it. And I've seen it at this point. You haven't, so no, I, I have none. Very, very interested to hear your yes. thoughts on it. I will give yes. no spoilers on my reactions. I'm All I will say is I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Excellent. And then eventually we'll do an episode on the film that I prepped for, which was Cabin in the Woods. So. Good times are are ahead of us in terms of continuing the tradition of looking at horror that is in woodsy places. As (laughs) always, I do want to make sure to thank, and I know Tony does as well, Jackson O'Brien, who's our editor for things, and is the reason that you all didn't have to hear our conversation about how we didn't know what film we were doing next. So thank you so much, Jackson.
1: Thank you, Jackson. You are a G.
0: (laughs) Tony, if people want to get a hold of us to share their thoughts about episodes or to ask us what episode they could do next or anything, what should they do?
1: They can reach out to us through our email, which is in the description or through any of our social medias. That's probably the best way to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you, just hear about what your thoughts are to the films we're discussing. Also, if you have a chance, wherever you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and give us a review and a rating that helps just get us our name out there. And be sure to tell your friends about us. Uh, Yes. In the real world, you can name drop it. It's kind of like tagging on social media with words. (laughs) That's right.
0: That's so magical. And, you know, if every one of you finds two people and they find two people in a very short time, we have taken over the world, which is, you know, a low key goal of mine. So there is is that. Is this
1: a podcast or a mixed marketing scheme? It is. Or a cult.
0: (laughs) Yes, the answer to all of those questions is yes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day.